All right. Welcome, listeners, to episode 44 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my friend, Sam Adler-Bell. Hi, Matt. How's it going? It's good. This is going to sound like virtue signaling, but I uh, got my uh, COVID booster shot. Excellent. Pfizer, Moderna. Pfizer. My third Pfizer. You're a Pfizer boy. <laughs> I'm a Pfizer boy all the way. As I joked on Twitter, I wish that uh, Pfizer worked the way like Hershey's says, like there may be uh, traces of peanuts in these. Um, it was made <laughs> in a factory where peanuts <laughs> existed. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking like it's made in a factory where Viagra exists and uh-huh. um, maybe I'll get a little, a little some, a little boost from uh, uh-huh. taking take. double boost. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Jesse, you can decide whether to cut that. But that's to say I'm uh, a little bit tired. I slept for like 14 hours last night. I haven't gotten my booster yet. I will. I'm. This is the first time we've recorded, Sam, uh, with me in central Pennsylvania. Yes. So I, I didn't get the booster shot before I left. I'll get it as soon as I get back. But for listeners, if I seem like 10% more reactionary this episode, <laughs> it's some kind of, you know, going back in, in time and, you know, uh, reverting to my youth. But we got a real barn burner. This episode, it's, well, I don't know if I should call it a barn burner or not. It was quite a chore to prepare for yeah. because we had to sit through and once again watch a bunch of hideous videos from the National Conservatism Conference. NatCon 2. Too national, too conservative. Yeah. <laughs> NatCon 2. Electric boogaloo. <laughs> Listeners will remember uh, in 2019, it was the inaugural National Conservatism Conference in D.C., uh, obviously, the pandemic year 2020, there wasn't one, at least at this scale. And recently in Orlando, Florida, they went to DeSantis country, you know, where people still live free yeah. and had this conference uh, October 31st through November 2nd. Um, so it was just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, it had, we'll tell you, all the people who were there, but everyone you would expect to be there was there, especially from the extended Know Your Enemy universe. Deneen, Hazoni, uh, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Amari, Saurabh Amari. Yes, uh, the whole gang was there. Really, <laughs> I read that uh, there was a whole lot of press there, uh, and I'm sorry we didn't get the invite. Um, but that they required yes. the press to wear bright red badges so that they could be um, uh-huh. seen against the crowd, so no one would um, get tricked into saying something racist. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, the red, the red armbands made it easier to identify who to beat up after the <laughs> sessions. Uh- <laughs> But yeah, so this episode will be about NatCon 2. Uh, for, for listeners who haven't listened to our, our, our episode from 2019 about NatCon 1, I recommend it. I think the name of the episode is um, The Definitely Not Racist National Conservatives. Um, <laughs> and so you can check that out to get a little bit more of the sort of first principles yes. at work in, in what, and what this conference is about. Um, but just as a shorthand before we dive in, it's it's basically, you know, the kind of part of the Republican Party, which in 2019 was trying to devise a sophisticated nationalist Trumpist conservatism, yes. a platform from which to take down the old conservative ink, right. the Reaganite right. consensus, uh-huh. the dead consensus. Um, that's right. That's who these guys are. Anyone who listened to our last episode on Frank Meyer, uh, when we talk about the contemporary critics of fusionism and that kind of style of conservatism that was kind of dominant from the 50s through the Reagan era and, you know, even into the the 2000s, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, So we'll put that, a bunch of those previous episodes, the Fusionism one, the previous National Conservatism one, we'll put those in the show notes. Yep. 
well, some housekeeping items. Uh, just a few today. As always, we are grateful for our sponsors at Descent for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, if you subscribe for $10 a month on our Patreon at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy, you get a free digital subscription to Descent. But uh, if you subscribe for $5 a month, you get all of our bonus episodes, of which there are many, and there will be more. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this won't be the last time I say this, but uh, you know, uh, uh, a $10 Patreon subscription to Know Your Enemy, which comes with a digital subscription to Descent, is a great gift for the discerning oh, that's uh, right. political watcher in your family or your house that is right we are entering the holiday season <laughs> the gift-giving season um i will not be being the uh desiccated left-wing hater of traditional approaches to, to christmas i'm gonna call it sparkle season so if you want to you know give a present to someone for sparkle season do consider uh uh the ten dollar double k-y-e descent option uh as always we want to thank our editor jesse brenneman and the person who does the music for the podcast will epstein who i will note will and i went to see um bob dylan at the beacon theater on sunday night home I'm so sorry, uh, Matt. He even played Every Grain of Sand as I, you lorded it, the, it over me yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> via text. Yeah, uh, it was actually, he played a lot of the songs from the new record. I also struck me as being a little bit more in a Christian or at least theological idiom. So maybe Bob's back on your side. He never left, Sam. He never <laughs> left. <laughs> All right. Should we get to it? Yes, let's do it. Here's our episode on National Conservatism 2. Right, Sam, let's get to it. You ready? I'm ready. Ready to dive in? Yes. <laughs> I uh, I mentioned in the intro that I'm recording this from home, which also means I am totally sober. <laughs> There's not a my listeners will know my parents are Baptists. There's not a drop of alcohol in this place, and because uh, they live in the fascist state of Pennsylvania, where the state controls the liquor stores, it's a chore to to actually get get a bottle of whiskey. Well, listeners can be the judge of whether our <laughs> our usual way of going about this is better or worse than um, when when Matt's uh-huh. stone cold sober. I too am sober, mostly because it's two p.m. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, but yes. that wouldn't always stop me. I think it's because I'm I'm dosed up. I got a flu shot and a COVID shot, and oh wow, I'm not trying uh-huh. to tempt fate here. <laughs> yeah, normally if we record a Tuesday uh, two in the afternoon, I'd be just slobbering drunk. By uh, <laughs> that's why we record. You know, over the course of this podcast, we've recorded early and earlier. We started at eight nine the evening, moved to like five o'clock, and now it's like if we don't record by noon, Sam's a little. Eh, Totally incoherent. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. But I might be a little angrier for that reason. But I'm also angry because of the absolute shit I had to watch. Yeah. In preparation for this, which is to say all these videos from the National Conservatism Conference. Yeah. And I know our brand is to be really fair. Yeah. And even... Our first episode on the ne- on the very first National Conservatism Conference, no one, uh, uh, no one less than Yoram Hazoni himself praised the fairness with which we explicated the ideas, even if he uh, disagreed with you know our, our assessment conclusions, of them and, yeah. and yes, the conclusions. But this time, I don't think we're going to get a similar tweet from Yoram, uh, just because, I, I mean, I'm hard to shock. 
Yeah. I feel like we've been watching the right for a couple of years now. I used to be a young conservative. It takes a lot to surprise me, but the sheer like uh, rage and fury and quite frankly, idiocy. Um, mm-hmm. th- this was not, I did not hear much that was intellectually respectable at this conference. Yeah. Um, with few exceptions. With a few exceptions. And that only made it more menacing to me because yeah. it was, it was like you departed from the realm of reason and entered the realm of rage. The realm of rage, uh, the realm of passions. And uh, it, well, it just was quite ominous. Yeah. So <clears throat> you mentioned Hazoni. For listeners who haven't listened to the old episode, I do recommend going back and listening to that. Hazoni is a, I think he's an American born, but um, is but Israeli academic, um, who's really kind of the... He's like the the sort of Saint Paul, the maestro. Yeah, the Saint Paul of this uh, enterprise. He he wrote a book called "The Virtues of Nationalism," um, mm-hmm. arguing again for a national conservatism against, in particular, sort of the liberal internationalism which has reigned uh-huh. in the post Cold War era. And he sort of like, interestingly, as an Israeli, is very focused on kind of the nation state as the like essential communal unit of sort of like global organization mm-hmm. and um, his, his nationalism is both informed by the Israeli experience and by a kind of idiosyncratic take on the American experience, yes. but which we'll get into. Yeah. And what I would say is that Matt is totally correct that I think that what distinguished this conference in my kind of general sense of it from the first one is that the first one, it was 2019. It was in the sort of heady days of when these, often somewhat suppressed elements in sort of conservative intellectual history and conservative Mm -hmm. political history, paleocons and nationalists and uh, traditionalists were using the sort of space cleared by Trumpism to have a hard think about what Republican conservatism Mm -hmm. could consist of in uh, in an era Mm -hmm. where everyone was challenging the sort of Reaganite orthodoxies. And so the first conference had... Even as, even as you peel back the layers, I think we determined, decided that it was a pretty, um, it had some pretty disturbing implications. It was a kind of philosophically sophisticated, at times, engagement with what the future of the American right might be. Yes, it was, and it, it kind of provided more substance to unpack. Yeah. Uh, on our end. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of the speakers who were at the first conference were at this one, but this one, it seemed like the, the talks were often a, a bit shorter maybe yeah and uh yeah sam as you're saying it just had a very different feel to it yeah um you could tell they felt like the wind was at their back yeah in a way um i mean one of the interesting things is as this conference was unfolding Youngkin won the race for governor of virginia right you know so it was kind of like as Chris Rufo, crt gambit seemed to deliver the governorship of virginia yeah i think jd vance it was during his speech, which was the last speech. He said something like, I heard that Youngkin won. Yeah. And it was kind of a, a wave of uh, applause and you know enthusiasm for that. Yeah. So it, it had a very different feel. And in that sense, Sam, as you were getting at, it felt a little less academic yeah. in the worst sense of what that could mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so the differences were really, you know, there were substantive differences. There was many more speakers at this one. Yeah. It felt like a much bigger gathering. Yeah. Um, or at least the number of speakers, the number of smaller panels, the number of breakout sessions, yeah. the number of young conservatives they included 
included on panels. Uh, it, it, was, it was just a very different mix. Um, again, it seemed to be structured a little differently. And again, the tone, it, it really it really did kind of descend into much more of a cheerleading pep rally yeah. than than a kind of sober discussion of ideas. Right. So if the like if the obligation of a sort of um, conference when we're, we're in 2019 when we're trying to establish shared first philosophical principles for a political movement is like let's have a sober complicated conversation about the history of conservatism and um, nationalism uh, the obligations of a pep rally are much more affective. We just need to get everybody's <laughs> yes. blood up, get people uh, excited about going and fighting in the trenches. Um, and and even though in word, nominally, there was a lot of discussion of on, on what minimal basis can we all be in a coalition together, affectively, it felt like that was already established. We know who the enemy yes. is. And we're basically all here just to hype each other up and get ready to go out and... Uh, Kick some ass. Kick some ass. <laughs> storm, storm the school boards and uh, uh-huh. and elect uh, you know Donald Trump or someone like him again in 2024. Yes, totally. And I I think it's worth underscoring here, close to the start, that this is proof that they're succeeding. In other words, this clearly is where the energy and ideas, such as they are, are at on the right right now. Yeah. At least you know when we think about ideas and programs that really could have genuine political ramifications. Yeah. And in that sense, Sam, I'm going to steal a line from you that we that you used when we were preparing for this and talking on the phone. David Brooks's article in The Atlantic, which got a lot of play online, in a lot of ways it was well done. Yeah. I have some criticisms of it. But the title of that piece, because he went down to the conference and wrote about it for The Atlantic, uh, the, the title of that piece is The Terrifying Future of the American Right what I saw at the National Conservatism Conference. And I think the mistake there is that it's the terrifying present of the American right. Yeah. That my sense of the, the, the number and kinds of people, who those people were at this conference, it's clear that, that the National Conservatives have won. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, 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 you know, if that's a little too clear cut, it's, to me it's clear that the momentum's with them. And again, I think the, the real indicator of that is just the number and kinds and young people there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that to me was very striking, and it's and it's like you know, if you're a young person on the right, this was like the hot place to be. Oh yeah, yeah. Even you know some of our acquaintances and friends among conservatives, some of the people we talked to, yeah, you just got the sense that this was the exciting thing. Yeah, I think that's right about Brooks, and I and you know we were joking beforehand. It was kind of like, well, you should have written this piece about the first one, 2019. That was yes. when it was the terrifying future. But it's it's worth noting that like. A lot of these guys still talk about um, their orientation toward the mainstream of conservatism as if they're on the outs. You know, they're still doing battle <laughs> yes. against conservative uh-huh. ink. Um, they're still trying to attract more um, donors to their campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a material sense in which that's probably still true. Especially with the money. With the money, right? Yes, so, like, because the right's always been funded by rich business people. Yeah, who so are not super excited about the idea of, like, some kind of industrial policy or even more tariffs uh-huh. or even going to war with China, a trade war with uh-huh. China, like, and, and, or even some of the more like pro-natalist welfare state stuff that these guys support. Um, that You'll get less uh, buy-in from the traditional conservative donor base for that mm-hmm. stuff. And so they still feel like they're on the outs. I mean, Peter Thiel, of course, spoke at this one as he did in 2019. He's like the kind of uh, idiosyncratic donor to the new right, to the national conservative cause. Uh But they maybe don't feel like they have everyone on their side. But there are, as you note, a few 
key figures that I feel like represent the way in which they've succeeded in pushing the Overton window or uh, pulling the parties in their direction uh, between 2019 and 2021. And those include um, someone like Ted Cruz giving a speech at this event. I don't think he would (laughs) have even been invited in 2019 because he represents very much the small government Tea Party, even Paul Ryanite. Um, yes. agenda, which is usually the punching bag of the national conservatives. Yes. He was swept into office in Texas in the Senate on the, I mean, he was part of the Tea Party wave. Yeah. And 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 as Matt, you said before we started recording, he's a weather vane. Like the guy has no yes. soul. He has <laughs> right no, po- he has no first principles. And so uh, the fact that he's there is clearly an indication that he knows that if he's going to run for president again, this is what he needs. Exactly. Exactly. He's a nihilist and a narcissist. And so him showing up, I just thought that was a real indicator. But you can look at other, there there yes, are yeah. you know, some more obvious ones, someone like Rich Lowry, yeah. the editor-in-chief of National Review, which was the organ of fusionism yeah. you know, for decades. He's there. But also someone like Kieran Skinner, who is a scholar who um, I would say... She among the things she's most famous for is she edited some of the books of Reagan's writings that were discovered after he died. Yeah. Uh, or at least after he was president, because he actually lived until 2004. So I think some of these books came out before then, but like his radio addresses and some of his letters. Yeah. So, you know, she she kind of cut her teeth as someone, at least on the right, who was known for her research on Ronald Reagan and who was, you know, the emblem. They might try to look back and say, actually, Reagan was more nationalist than, yeah. you know, Lore would say. But nevertheless, you know, these are people who, again, were scholars of Reagan. Also, she's a black woman, foreign policy yes. scholar, which was, when you think about the generation of like Colin Powell, um, this this sort of like the multicultural era where the conservatives were trying to bring where they when they were when they were bringing these um, really smart black thinkers into their fold. Condoleezza Rice. Condoleezza Rice. Um, she's kind of of that generation, and yes. um, the speech that she gave was very much a speech defending what she called the Trump doctrine, which uh-huh. is a much more isolationist policy than would have been advocated by the administrations she um, was involved with in the past. Another good one is um, Chris DeMuth. Yes, former president of AEI. Yeah, so AEI is still like this, the center of gravity for the very mainstream conservative Reaganite consensus. Um, he is no longer there. Right, which is telling. And he's giving one of these speeches that's sort of like, I know we probably have disagreed about a lot of things in the past, and you'll probably think, what's he doing here? And I think, you know, some of these things are not exactly right, but we're all on the same page that we need a much more muscular sort of nationalist foreign policy, uh, more protectionism, a little bit more willingness to use state power to, as Josh Hammer, one of the young people (laughs) who speaks of this thing, would say, reward our friends and punish our enemies. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the the, the basics here will be familiar to the listeners, um, but the fact that somebody like DeMuth is there, too, is an indication of of, of how... Mm -hmm. The national conservatives have pulled the gravity of the party towards themselves and some people who might have previously been the defenders of the existing orthodoxy have followed where the wind was blowing. Yeah. Yeah. If you go down the list of speakers, uh, it is a mix of kind of newer figures, people, you know, you might not have heard of before they were associated with national conservatism or Trumpism or however you want to put it. But again, a lot of, you know, people who have labored in the vineyards of the right for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. from John O'Sullivan to my old teacher, Josh Mitchell, someone like Mary Eberstadt, uh, Rusty Reno, Robert Royal. These people have been on the right 
their whole careers basically. Yeah. You know, so it really is a mix. And I, I think too, just before we dive in a little more, it's a, it shows how the place of ideas on the right and the relationship between so-called intellectuals on the right and electoral politics and the Republican party. I've said before how small the conservative movement is. And I think you got a sense, you can really get a sense that like, it's so interesting to see a political movement be taken up by intellectuals and then made more coherent perhaps in a way, but solidified it somehow, you know, like it's that, that interplay between like Trump being elected, the sense of new political possibilities, the intellectual right adapting, and now watching this conference where it all kind of comes together. It's just, uh, I, there's just, uh, despite their protestations that the left is, uh, you can speak about it as a whole without any complexity or, yeah. you know, differentiation. Despite that claim about the left, this is, you know, a classic projection where the left is so disorganized. Yeah. We know this, yeah. you know, um, as people on the left. And yet that kind of coherence and sense of marching and lockstep is actually what we see on the right far, far more. Yeah, there's a real proteanism to conservatism, which is... Yes. Um, usually something that's associated with liberalism. But in fact, they're very good at sort of establishing a minimum program or at least a, a minimum affective posture towards their enemies, which can then be the sort of loose structure in which everybody can get their piece of the, the policy pie. I remember a good line from the DeMuth speech well, at least a, a, a symptomatic line was... Um, a line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a line, let's say, was when he was talking about how neocons used to say they were um, liberals mugged by reality. DeMuth said that natcons are conservatives who've been mugged by reality. Or as I once joked in the podcast, just mugged. <laughs> <laughs> Jews who got beat up on the playground by their black classmates. But the, the natcons... Uh, which is literally an anecdote from Norman Pedoritz's memoir. We're yes. not like making any of no, this up. No, no. Or, or just casting aspersions. This is... You can read it in his fucking book, okay? Yeah. But the, the reality that I guess the, the, the natcons uh, have been mugged by is the reality of, you know, this overweening progressive behemoth, mm -hmm. the wokeism, this sort of abandonment of formal liberal equality in, in favor of Ibram X. Kendi style equity politics. Um, I mean, these are these are the boogeymans that they're agreeing to do battle with together. Yes. Well, Sam, that might be a good transition to dive into one of the speeches, which I think is representative, maybe not even if entirely representative, a, a distillation of the id. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, the speech given. It's the one David Brooks starts his Atlantic uh, article with, or at least the person he does, which is my old friend, Rachel Bovard. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I went to college with her. She was a year behind me and uh -huh. we interned together the same summer at Heritage. Oh, wow. So I used to know her quite well. And it's, it's really... Um, really inspiring to see your good friend rising the ranks of the Republican conservative movement. That's so sweet of you to say, Matt. It's, it's a real, like, a path diverged in the woods, you know, um, you're such a moment big, for me. such a big-hearted, magnanimous guy. Um, but I thought her speech was absolutely unhinged. Yeah. Absolutely unhinged. Just to give you a flavor for it, her uh, talk was uh, part of a panel called What is National Conservatism? which he was on with Josh Hammer, Ryan Williams, and Julius Krein. It was called National Conservative Priorities. Mm. And just some of the lines that, uh, you know, stuck out to me were, I mean, really just things that didn't even make sense to me. Like uh, at one point, she said, elite wokeness 
it's literally skull and bones for gender studies majors. Like this is what being a part of the left is. Like you're a part of a club, mm-hmm. and it's and she compared it to skull and bones, and I just that made absolutely no sense to me. Well, the implication, is, yeah, the implication <laughs> is that it's an elite, you know, kind of clerisy. Um, uh-huh. But it, it, but it's it is kind of more. It's more just words than it is uh, sense. Yes. <laughs> And, is, and David Brooks, part of the kind of whiplash of reading his piece is he begins by talking about Rachel, that she's friendly, cheerful, chipper. She's a side gig as a sommelier. Cool. You know, you're prepared to kind of like this person. And then he gets to her ideas. And uh, I think the line, this one really struck me. It's, this is Brooks's line. But he says, one of the ideas she's absorbed is that the conservatives who came before her were insufferably naive. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that sense of naivete, it's it's something that really has marked the right for a long time. Like it was, it marked the way when I was a young conservative, people talked about uh, the Democratic Party, liberals, the left during the Cold War, that they yeah. were stooges, you yeah. know, uh, useful idiots, yeah, just these these kind of naive at best, if not downright treasonous, right? People who just couldn't be trusted with power. Yeah. And here's another line of this is from her. She said woke elites increasingly the mainstream left of this country do not want what we want what they want is to destroy us yeah not only will they use every power at their disposal to achieve their goal as they have for years by dominating every cultural intellectual and political institution yeah they want to destroy us that that in a way is the summary yeah that is that the is whole, the common the theme. conference yeah in many speeches there, there was this a repetition of the takeaway the left wants to destroy this country they don't just have competing like (laughs) political ends or different concepts of the good they want to destroy this country and look i mean we may be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but it's pretty (laughs) obvious that like what the right does is build up the coherence and viciousness of their collectivist yes. progressive enemy as a means of justifying any means um, to unseat them yes. from power yes. to um, beat them and uh-huh. uh, take control for themselves yeah. it's just it's yeah. everywhere that really struck me too Sam and you see the like the logic of right-wing thinking here you have to create this totalizing but fairly abstract enemy that becomes a cipher for everything you hate about the world yeah and therefore you know it justifies as you're saying, any means necessary because if you're trying to be destroyed i mean if this is it becomes mere self-defense yes right to give you a flavor of that i'm going to give one more quote from uh, rachel if i can still address her by her first name <laughs> as old friends do here's another way she described the the left-wing elite as quote a totalitarian cult of billionaires and bureaucrats a privilege perpetuated by bullying empowered by the most sophisticated surveillance and communications technologies in history and limited only by the scruples of people who arrest rape victims' fathers, declare math to be white supremacist, finance ethnic cleansing in Western China, and who partied a mile high on Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express. Yeah, yeah. Pretty good stuff, Rachel. (laughs) It kind of felt like it was generated by a bot. Like if there was a a right-wing bot that just strung together cliches of conservative... Well, they're all thinking they're all little synecdoche for like full for sort of completely fully realized controversies and scandals that everyone on the right, like each one of those uh, things 
you immediately know what they're talking about. Like the rape victim's father is the father of the, <laughs> Math to be white. the father who, of the person whose daughter was, was allegedly raped by a trans person in their high school. The math, mm. the math of white supremacist is some kind of DEI thing. Of course, ethnic cleansing in Western China is uh-huh. the, the Uyghurs and, and Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Luckily, our listeners know exactly what that is. Um, but uh, <laughs> speaking of like just getting the blood up and speaking to the id, these are all just the things that like make conservatives who are plugged into this world gnash their teeth. It's, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's clever because it's not, but you can see what she's trying to signal because they're all in the mix together. Yeah. It's like Jewish pedophiles are in cahoots with people who hate white people and who are basically just letting the country be defeated by China, whatever that means for them. Yes, 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 exactly. Um, So the kind of the train of associations there is it's not an accident. It's not an accident, no. uh, you know, that certain things are juxtaposed and put together in the same formulation. Yeah. And I guess just again, like, I think that so much of what is accomplished with all of these speeches is defining the enemy as having already abandoned liberalism, as already having abandoned the founding, abandoning the Constitution, abandoned American principles, and therefore we must do the same. You know, that like the grounds on which liberalism has become triumphant are illiberal grounds. And therefore, why should we play by the rules if they're not going to? Yes. It's giving themselves permission. Yes. As we've said for two years now, you have to ask, what are they giving themselves permission to do? That's been one of our refrains on the show. We haven't really used it for a while, but I think the first context in which we used it was the National Conservatism Conference and some of the illiberal right that there's a lot of overlap between the two. Yeah. And it's so fascinating, too, because, you know, every once in a while I'd be listening to these speeches and, and, you know, reading articles about it. And I'd step back and think, Joe Biden is president. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. And and I, I do think there's a connection here I want to make at the start where I think because Biden actually is doing all the things Trump said he would do. Yeah. They actually have to ratchet up the emotional pitch even more yeah. because it, it really can't be about substance because what are they going to say? We need an infrastructure bill. Yeah. You know, we need to get tougher on China. Yeah. You know, Jeffrey Epstein's bad. Well, guess who's never been photographed with Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> Joe Biden. Not your fucking sun god, Donald Trump. Right? Yeah. No, totally. That's like, a good point. It's 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 just I do think there's some sense and I mean you there there were people who talked about policy some. I'm not yeah. going to try to, you know, pretend yeah. it was it, that wasn't present at all. But when you really drill down, I mean, not a lot of people went beyond slogans like break up big tech or yeah. get tough on China or bolster the nuclear family. Yeah, these kind of just clichés in a way that that what they mean substantively could be many different things, frankly. Yeah. But I again, I just think every once in a while when she's talking about how all their enemies are part of a totalitarian cult. Yeah. I'm like do you think Joe Biden's leading a totalitarian cult? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's almost beyond, it's just a headspace I have trouble getting into. It's a really good point about the cognitive dissonance of, of Biden achieving a lot of the things that Trump set out to achieve. The, uh-huh. the infrastructure bill is one. Of course, they would have like quibbles with the actual way that the money is allocated. But like, sure. look, it's a slightly smaller amount of money. And you guys are saying that this infrastructure bill is going to 
you know, is going to cause inflation to go run amok and uh, for the whole country to fall uh-huh. apart. No, it's like it's a it's a version of the same thing Trump wanted to do. Remember, yeah. infrastructure week, never ending infrastructure week. I actually there was a point relatively early in Trump's uh, presidency when I really took a hard look into what the Republican Party's infrastructure bill was. Yeah. And it was extraordinarily different than what Biden did in the sense that it was almost all like tax breaks and gimmicks. Yeah. You know, like tax breaks to incentivize investment yes. in this or that state or in this is this or that sector, you know, to use Bannon's formulation, Steve Bannon's formulation. It was a trillion dollar infrastructure bill, but like that number, one trillion, was like not really mostly a, a tax se. a tax giveaway. Yes. But that's exactly but that's exactly the point because these guys are way more invested than any sort of uh, conservative coalition has been in a long time in actually uh-huh. fiscal policy and actually spending money, you know, not just tax breaks, you know, like that's that's something you do hear them say when they talk about policy is like we've been too focused on tax breaks for the rich. Like we need an industrial uh-huh. policy for the Midwest, you know, um, you can't do an industrial policy via tax breaks. You actually need to you actually have to do some central yeah. planning, in fact. Yeah. But another thing I was going to say about just about on this topic of, of Biden doing the things Trump said said he would do mm-hmm. the china saber rattling is a big thing too i mean this administration is as aggressive in its posture at least rhetorically and i think behind the scenes uh, more than rhetorically i mean he and she mm-hmm. just met and my understanding is that uh, they're taking a very aggressive posture towards china even more so than the trump mm-hmm. administration did and then and then afghanistan look i mean trump said he was said he wanted to get out of these stupid wars who did it Right. Biden did it. Um, And so even on the sort of more isolationist foreign policy element of this, which is a big it's a big NatCon thing. It's like we should pick we we shouldn't go out and try to spread liberal democracy in parts of the world that don't want it. Um, Who who actually did it? Well, it was Biden. And so there's this thing. I think you're exactly right, where if it's not going to be the policy substance of national conservatism it has to be just the sensationalist affective yeah. we hate the enemy and yes. you know and we and uh-huh. we and we hate you know woke progressivism yes put a pin in this call it sitman's law okay and it is as the substantive differentiation between the parties decreases the amount of insane bullshit the right turns out ratchets up <laughs> yeah they're inversely co- correlated yes as yes. one goes down the other goes up I wanted to make one more comment about Rachel Bovard, just because this this is a petty personal thing, but it really chapped my ass. She talked about how universities and colleges subordinate fact and truth mm-hmm. to politics. Yeah. Now, this is someone who graduated from Grove City College, mm-hmm. as I did. And our textbook for Econ 101 was <laughs> Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State. And I remember the first chapter. It was so fucking ridiculous. It was all about praxeology, yeah, which is the science of human action for them. And as one uh, old teacher of mine once said, praxeology, they might as well just call it alchemy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like fake science. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it's like there was never, I mean, the, that was a school dedicated to being right wing and conservative. Yeah. And everything was subordinated to that. Yeah. And so you just kind of, it's just amazing to me, the lack of self-awareness, maybe the lack of honesty or integrity to not realize that like, hey, what you think an education is, is actually just right wing indoctrination. Yeah. And like, it's not wrong that like there are progressive orthodoxies at elite university. It's right. It, there, are, there really are. And in, in certain, yes. in certain circumstances, stiflingly so. But the idea that Grove City was less stifling. Yeah, yeah, it's clearly not 
the case. Another element of sort of the recurring themes that were trying to uh, address people in their guts and in their hearts, such as they are, was just constant pay-ins to masculinity. It yes. was everywhere. I mean, that's obviously not new on the right, <laughs> but every time there was a, an opportunity to define what it is that um, <laughs> distinguishes national conservatism from the old consensus on the right and the uh, suffocating liberal <laughs> consensus on the left, it was always about well, we're going to be tougher. We're going to be more manly. Josh Hammer, again, I don't know why I fixated him. I think it's because he's like the Jew um, in the group. <laughs> I mean, his own, he's a Jew too, but like, uh, you know, a, an Orthodox uh, Hammer, I, I kind of like, I kind of get this guy. But he uh-huh. he, he said, uh, the fusionism of conservative ink has shown itself to be a feat, limp, and unmasculine. It's always yeah. like your dick isn't hard enough. Um, and yeah. if your dick was just harder, <laughs> then conservative uh, nationalism would have won already. It's always a failure of will, which really ends up being a failure of manliness. A failure of will and potency. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, even more explicitly, our friend Josh Hawley's entire speech mm-hmm. was just about saving American masculinity the future of the American man is what it's called. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Just and you have sorry. and you have like, so uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll let I'll, I'll let you give your little. <laughs> so I'm I'm eager gosh, to hear what you gosh. have to say about Holly's performance, um, because because the substance of it is always interesting, can be interesting, but the actual performance of it is always mm-hmm. a richer text. <laughs> I mean, it was so wrote it was just like yes. what happened to manly men do you know democrats in congress they don't even say the word women anymore yes yes <laughs> you know, it was it had that kind of like yes. yes you know uh drunk uncle on thanksgiving except for that he actually like is not believable as a drunk uncle on thanksgiving uh no, he would be that's more... what makes him so hilarious yeah me. you can imagine a version of that speech which is much more focused on their actual like policy complaints which is to mm-hmm. say like the decline of manufacturing, the the, the fact that the, yes. there is no, there's there's no um, way for a man to be like a breadwinner who does something with his hands mm-hmm. and produces something valuable for the country. And like I wouldn't agree with all the policy prescriptions, both because they wouldn't work and because it's not the world that I want. <laughs> yeah. But of like reviving patriarchal Fordism, they don't even like actually put meat on the bones of what it would mean to revive patriarchal Fordism. They just say. Uh-huh. We need to give men an opportunity to be men again and to be heroes and go out in the world and do heroic deeds, uh-huh. which in the time of Kyle Rittenhouse, I don't want to get too far into that, but like uh, in the time of Kyle mm-hmm. Rittenhouse, where motivated by a sense of obligation as a man to protect property, went out and actually ended up killing two people. The idea that like providing more outlets for young right wing men to feel like heroes is like the focus of conservative appeals that's not really very encouraging to me. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty disturbing. Yeah. I've noticed uh, in the past few days, uh, not to be, uh, you know, the lowest form of punditry is your sense of things on Twitter. But I have noticed like a genuine uptick in, there have been like statistics released by, you know, studies done, government agencies, whatever, about during the pandemic, um, especially as the pandemic drug on, uh, the number of women who are like working age, adult women who left the workforce basically to care for people at home it seems like right in some cases the numbers are pretty surprisingly large yeah i just mean the actual statistic is eye-opening i'll put it that way and i've seen a number of comments from these types of guys on the right were like well what's wrong with that yeah 
oh, so women can't stay home to care for people? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's like it's like a weird misogynistic defense of women. Yeah. Like their their places in the home. If that's what a woman chooses, I have no problem with that. I'm yeah. not knocking that at all. I'm not, you know, trying to be critical of that. I'm saying I think it should be women's choice. And we know during the pandemic it wasn't. Yes. But, you know, that kind of it, it just reinforces the sense. I mean, the 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 description of Holly's speech on the National Conservative YouTube channel is Senator Josh Hawley delivers a passionate defense of men, passionate indeed, of men, masculinity, and the industrial sector. Yeah. And so you're right. Patriarchal Fordism is the model. Yeah. Man works in the factory, earns enough money to be the breadwinner while the woman stays home and raises children. Yeah. That yeah. really is their model. And you get the sense sometimes they can't quite say that exactly or say it so directly. Yeah. Um, some might. But that bit about women staying home, the kind of rather than viewing that as like a failure of policy in some way that people had to quit jobs, that children had to stay home, that, you know, rather than viewing that as a kind of bad thing or, yeah. or suboptimal, they actually view it as, uh, as, hey, what are people complaining about? This is a reversion to the natural order of things. Well, yeah. So that's the, that's the important thing right there. You said it like that, like it isn't exclusively about like giving people the material conditions to make choices for themselves about what kind of family uh-huh. they want to have. It's about returning to a natural order. But the, 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 the reason that I think there's some skittishness about this, even amongst the national conservatives, is if millions of women were leaving the workforce to take care of their children without all of the really unprecedented welfare spending that both the yes. Trump and Biden administrations engaged in during the pandemic... Well, our economy would be shit, right? We'd be so yes. fucked. And actually, our economy is doing quite well. <laughs> but that's because we sent people quite a lot of money via unemployment yes. checks, via one-time checks, and, and now soon via child tax credits. So like, the, the condition even of the minimal situation in which women, obviously not entirely freely, can even ever make the choice, even if it's a sacrifice, to leave their work and stay home with their kids is one where we have a totally new, unfamiliar level of government spending, a welfare spending for uh, families. And um, though certain parts of this coalition make noises about that being on the agenda, they're also opposing the infrastructure bill and even and even more vigorously the social spending bill, which is <laughs> like barely beginning the process. But the, the contradiction is always going to be this, that... Well, we might imagine a much more robust social democracy, a welfare state where where families can make decisions about who's going to be caretakers and who's going to be breadwinners at different times in their lives, maybe flip back and forth, whatever. Maybe one person will always, you know, stay home. Like, I totally want that world. Like, I think neoliberalism yes. is hell. Like, it, 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 yes. it, it tells us that they're giving us choices while actually yoking us to our jobs, um, yes. promising us choices while giving us unfreedom. I agree. But the first principle, the, the, the place where the rubber hits the road is that freedom is not the goal. The goal yeah. is reasserting a traditional moral order, a patriarchal yes. order, in which women or other kinds of caretakers have less less choice, even less choice yes. than under neoliberalism. And so we're not going to agree about <laughs> how to build that world. Yes. I don't, did you see this? What, I don't know how to say his name. Scott Yenner? Yenner? Yes, Scott Yenner. Yenner. I, I met him back in the day. Certain names rattle around in your brain. And you wonder where they come from. And then it hit me. I had dinner with him. He spoke at UVA. He, gave, he seemed a, less less of a lunatic then, but 
maybe he I seem like a real lunatic these days. I mean, he he gave his speech on the family form that nations need. He's now a Washington fellow at Claremont's um, DC think tank, and his thing was like saying this quiet part loud. <laughs> <laughs> like he's saying he's saying look like if only men were engineers like if every if there were no women engineers that would be something to celebrate that would be fine oh my goodness if it meant that women were using their naturally endowed by god role as caretakers um instead uh-huh. like why should we care about gender equi- equity at all uh-huh. if we know that the best order is one in which men do manly things and women do womenly things do you know why our infrastructure's failing? All these women engineers building shitty bridges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't say that, but he might as well. It's also why they fear, um, and, and I think we've gotten to this before, but why they fear transgender politics so oh, much, yes. because it's, it's an assault to the natural order. It blurs lines they want to be sharp. Yeah, and if, as they believe, Western civilization is based on this careful tension between male and female propensities and capacities, blurring the lines between the genders is another recipe for uh, civilizational decline. Yes. I just want to follow up from your point, Sam, about different competing visions of the welfare state or you know social spending, the different kind of models of the family and society that they, they might imply. You, you really put, put it well. And the world I want is one where the kind of safety net that empowers people to live flourishing lives, you know, whatever that kind of means in your particular context. Yeah. Um, that is a very, that kind of empowering people to live healthy, full lives in which they live and love and can use their abilities and gifts to the fullest extent possible. That is not the world these people want. No. And I, th- I think the subordination of women is one of the really striking features of it, uh, even if it's by implication or, or it's the kind of the quiet part. And I often do wonder what someone like Rachel Bovard thought of when she listened to that kind of speech. Yeah. You know, like the women here who are accomplished professional women, whatever else you might think of them. Yeah. I don't know if they would say we're just exceptions or I, you know, I don't know what their answer would be to that. There's one answer that transcends the gender question, because I think all of these people will say things like, what would be so wrong if nobody went to college anymore and they all just went to work in factories? Wouldn't that be good for this country? They'll all say, like, what, what, what's wrong with women staying in the home? Why should everyone have to go to a four-year college and read all these books and stuff? They don't want, they would never accept that for themselves. It, it's, it's only about the other people. <laughs> for them, they yes. love the life of the mind. That's why they do this shit, or at least they love yes. politics. You know, they love the, 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 you know, the fun game of politics. But it's all like those people out there will accept being re-yoked to the obligations of, of a more traditional form of work and traditional form of family. We won't. We're still going to like be the people writing books about why that's good. You know, yes. but it's all uh-huh. it's all about advocating less freedom for who they 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 implicitly perceive as their lessers, while never saying like yes, and I'm gonna go uh, work in a dye factory too. You first, Josh Holly. Yeah, yeah. If this is, if you really want to live a virtuous life, and this is the path you say is the path to virtue, what are you doing with all your book learning and Senate speechifying? When you could be home working the factory and building community in your uh, local area. It's not that I think that, like, I don't, I don't, I like, I can agree that, like, this country, we, that we need to 
we need to much more uh, appreciate culturally and materially the work that must be done uh, yes. for people totally to, to to live. You know, I mean, but the but the kinds of work that are actually the least appreciated, honored in this country are are forms of care work and service work, primarily done mm-hmm. by women and immigrants. Which these people yes. never ever fucking talk about. Like it's not no, it's about like always a factory. Yeah, they're not talking about like reigniting a sense of honor in being a home healthcare worker, which uh-huh. is like going to be one of the hugest jobs in America because all of yes. these fucking boomers are going to need somebody to take care of them very very soon. I mean, this is why it's just it's nostalgic and reactionary. It wants to return to a time that can never be achieved. It's just, it's completely fantastical. Like this country can't become the kind of manufacturing hub that it was in the immediate post-war era for a very short amount of time. Uh It just won't happen. Uh But it's also, it's motivated by ideology. It's motivated by a desire to reassert a certain kind of order that they're nostalgic for and not to actually take care of the people that they, they suddenly in the past six years decided that they cared about, which is to say working class people and poor yes. people. Yes, totally. And it's at that point of the immediate post-war economy. I remember at some point looking at some of the economic indicators of that immediate post-World War II era, and it is striking how it, it is, as you're getting at, impossible to recreate because the conditions for it were Europe devastated by war, yeah. the Soviet Union devastated by its efforts in the war. Yeah. In America, which came in late, did not fight wars on its own soil. Yeah. And therefore, you know, our people in industrial capacity, you know, all there. by the New Deal and it was all there. And, and by the like, wartime economy. <laughs> yes. It, it, yeah, our economy almost was the world economy. And if you pretty much almost literally in the sense of if you look at, say, the percentage of steel produced, you know, the world's steel produced by the United States in, say, 1945. Yeah. Or 1948. It's, I, yeah. I forget the exact number, but it's shockingly high. But again, that was, that can only happen in the wake of a devastating world war in which we bestrode the world as the victor. And you just can't recreate those conditions in anything approaching normal times. The other thing that people don't realize is how short that period of time actually was. We think that like the manufacturing didn't start really declining until the seventies. But if you look at those steel numbers, you can read this in, um, Gabe Winant's book, the, the Next Shift. Oh, right. The steel numbers started going down way earlier than that, way earlier yes. than the than the actual imposition of neoliberal austerity. And so, you know, the post war economy is the exception to a rule. I think more and more people on the left understand that, and it's all it's all fantasy. On the left, people fantasize about it because it's like that's when the the sort of uh, trade union movement was at its zenith, and so try to think themselves into convincing themselves we can get that back. We won't get that <laughs> yeah. back that way. And on the left, mm-hmm. on the right, they think of it as ideal because it was sort of the peak of sort of patriarchal American nationalist power, but we're not getting that back either. Yeah. For all these people's valorization of tradition, what they really want is like 1950s style suburbia or something. Yeah. Precisely the form <laughs> of collectivist liberalism that the conservative movement was created to oppose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's the thing uh, I yeah, kept thinking right. reading Meyer is like, wow, you guys are you're talking exactly the way that people today talk about like progressive woke orthodoxy. But what you're describing is the world that now today's conservatives want back so bad. <laughs> yes. Before we move on, uh, I just want to say about the masculinity stuff. There is something just almost surreal to me that Holly has designated himself the avatar of this. 
<laughs> That's Tell all it. I'll say. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Yeah, well, I, I'm not the kind of person to say more than that. Yeah. But it is surreal. He cannot help but seem like a fairly bad community theater actor voicing the lines of a prairie populist. Yeah, he you could kind of imagine him being like a part of the production and waiting for Guffman or something. Yeah. Or like our town. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. He's a bad actor. He's a bad in actor. Multiple senses of that term. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So what else do we got? I was struck by Hazoni's speech. Uh, I mean, I thought his speech at the first National Conservatism Conference was extremely interesting, actually, because I believe that was where he connected like border issues and migration to trans issues, which is like deeply troubling in so many different ways, but was like intellectually kind of like I saw what he was trying to do. It was illuminating. There was something, uh, yeah, a little, almost. I don't want to say clever, but it made me, it's like, oh, oh, I hadn't quite heard it put that way before. Yeah. And I would say his speech at the this second National Conservatism Conference was one of the more sober-minded, you might yeah. say. Yeah. I, I don't think it was as rich and substantive as the first one, but um, it, at least in tone. A little decadence has already set into the National Conservative movement. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. I, I, again, feel like you could possibly have a conversation with Urim because he seems kind of like a cheerful guy, too, in a way. Yeah. Like, I'm not exactly surprised that he's one of the maestros of the National Conservatism movement. He seems like someone who could get along with different kinds of people yeah. and bring them together. And we don't need to really, you know, exhaustively unpack his speech but there was a couple points in it that i was fascinated by Uh, one of them and this is something very similar to his first speech but he did dip into the the extreme rhetoric some for example i wrote this down Uh, he described a quote cultural revolution a neo-marxist revolution that's a threat to the entire democratic world yeah Conservatives believe in the public good, the common good, but freedom of speech has ceased to exist because of private corporations. Mm -hmm. Liberals don't believe in the common good. And then he kind of takes jabs at his conservative friends who, who like supposedly defend porn and say, well, who cares Uh, how you make your money? Yeah. But I think the point that, that hit me the most, especially as a religious person, it actually bothered me the most, Mm. which is that he says the great turning point. The turning point in American civilization was in the 1940s when we took God and scripture out of the schools, yeah. meaning Bible, Bible reading and prayer in public schools. Yeah. And I just, as a religious person and as someone who graduated from an American high school, <laughs> I, I kept thinking to myself, I could not imagine staying religious or not because like my homeroom teacher led yeah. us in an anodyne prayer or yeah. like context-free reading of scripture. I get why in the conservative imagination, there's something symbolically powerful about supposedly you know, removing God from public schools, yeah. which is not the case, right? Uh, students, I mean, when I was in high school, I led the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I led Bible studies Friday yeah. mornings uh, at breakfast. Like there are still lots of ways that religious people and even in public high schools can express that. Right. So I just, but I thought that him, him harping on that was quite interesting. But then where he went was he kept doing this thing where he would compare uh, the, the numbers of different kinds of people in the United States. Yes. Right. So he would say things like, well, 80% of the population is married or will marry, but 2% of the population 
are gay. Yeah. And he's like, so when it comes to having a public culture and it needs to have norms, the government can't be neutral between the 80% and the 2%. Yeah. And it's like, is that really the point? Yeah. This is where the abuse of the term liberal neutrality really bothers me Mm. because neutrality is not the right word. It's like if... Uh, are you saying that the 2% shouldn't be treated fairly by the criminal justice system or the court system yeah. or public policy? Like, should they at least get their due, some kind of sense of fair fair play and yeah. due process? What does it mean to not be neutral between the two? It's kind of almost a might makes right argument. And I, I really don't know what that means he wants. And he uses the example of Jews who are, what, about 2% of the population in the United States, right? And he says, uh, all the Jews in this country need is a kind of a carve-out to live according to their traditions. They don't need to clear the public space of Christianity. And he said, like, for instance, what, you know, serious Jewish person walks through town and sees a Christmas tree in front of the mayor's office or the town hall or whatever and is really offended? Mm-hmm. And it's like, is that really what's at issue? Yeah. One of the examples I thought of was back in my conservative days, uh, there's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, a historian who, he was Jewish and he, whatever public school he went to in like New Jersey, it was like 95% Catholic, right? And he talked about being a Jewish student forced to participate in like a Christmas pageant mm-hmm. and how uncomfortable that made him. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that might be a little closer to a real life example of, you know, what some kind of fair play means. But it was very disturbing to me in its implications in certain ways, because what what happens to the minority by by chalking it up all to to like a rejection of liberal neutrality, that doesn't really answer anything for me. I would say that the the example of a Jewish kid having to perform in the Christmas play, you know, like a a believing believing Jewish kid having that's like um, one step further than the Christmas tree. But the real concern is the actual concern that existed pre liberalism, (laughs) which was like, to put it in the same kind of basic structure, it was passion plays during which the Christians in the town would get their blood up about the Jews having killed Christ and then go beat up Jews. Like, (laughs) you know, like, like the, the, the concern is not merely like who feels bad, you know, about whether (laughs) they're being represented or not. Like that's, Mm -hmm. you're living in a world that is so profoundly the fruit of liberalism for better or for worse the way you imagine the stakes is just oh who has to like feel like they're engaging in some kind of mild apostasy to do this or that thing that they're they're supposed to do yeah. um but actually the pre-liberal world is one in which people's religious passions resulted in <laughs> in very frequent violence and when it comes to jews pogroms yes often in necessary relation to public religious spectacle so like yes. it's not it's not little jimmy felt bad because he had to play one of the three wise men you know mm-hmm. and i'm not saying i mean to make it sound like i'm giving uh, uh doing a slippery slope here but the but the point is the point is the imperfect balance between different kinds of religious belief in american liberalism that's been established um and in western liberalism in general the stakes of it are not like who has to look at a Christmas tree? No, the stakes totally are not. Of it. Who, who is who is allowed to put a yeah. gang together of the majority to go beat up the people that they blame for <laughs> the death of their savior? And even his kind of aside that like all minorities really need uh, with Jews as the example is a kind of carve out, right, to be able to live their traditions. And it's like, whoa, 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 where'd you get that idea from? So you, you know, certain people should you know have rights. 
<laughs> people have rights and you shouldn't be forced to do certain things. Yeah. What political philosophy espoused that idea? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and if you're rejecting liberalism, how does that granting of a carve out amount to anything other than the good graces of political leaders that could switch on a dime? We have a name for that carve out. It's called a ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that too. Yes. Um, so it was just in, in certain ways. Um, I mean, he actually says, if you choose to be a minority, your life is going to be a little harder. Yeah. I think being a Jew is worth it. Yeah. But even that, if you choose to be a minority? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like I suppose you can choose whether to be a practicing Jew or not, but yes. you can't choose whether to be African-American. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you can't choose to be a black person born in the South yeah. in the 1920s. Well, so the, <laughs> you know? the thing is that, like... It's not serious. It's, this is not morally serious. Like, if you dig just a little bit, it's utterly incoherent. Well, look, the way to make sense of it is by what his talk was called, which was called, was called defusionism. Right. And his big complaint is that fusionism um, and he name checks our, our friend Frank Meyer is the idea of a public liberalism and a private conservatism. And his argument yes, is true. that mm-hmm. private conservatism will never survive the institution of a public liberalism as a first political principle. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he so 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 the, so the question is not like trying to establish minimal procedural grounds for different religious believers to live together in society, which would be the liberal question. The question uh-huh. is, how do we ensure the cons- the particular traditionalist conservative end that we want? Mm-hmm. And the question is, does liberalism do it? And their answer is no. Right. So they're not going mm-hmm. to make an argument from the principles and necessities of the human dignity of every individual person and living together. The question is like, let's look at liberalism's fruits and uh, has it created the sort of society we want? And their answer is no. So like it's (laughs) the tension we're going to always have here is like that the ends of liberalism, you know, in in, in its Mm -hmm. most uh, sanguine description of recognizing the dignity of every individual human person and the need to create minimal political conditions for people with profoundly different concepts of the good to live together, like mm-hmm. those ends are not their ends. Their ends are to create no. a society in which only one end prevails. Yes, no, I, I, yeah. I agree. But it is uh, again, just as a as someone who who is quite religious, I'm struck by like if you need the state <laughs> to get people on board with your religion, yeah. and keep them there, that's just to me it's it's kind of outsourcing your failures to someone else. Hmm. Mm-hmm. If you raise your kids and you can't model a compelling vision of the faith you claim to dedicate your life to, whose fault is that? That's yeah. not the government's fault. Well, what they think is that it's always everyone else's fault. Yeah. And the re- this, this, is the, this is the pathetic thing. All these people are all about personal responsibility and all they're doing is whining that they can't keep their kids Christian or Jewish or <laughs> Catholic or whatever because the state isn't coercive enough. And it's right. like, sorry, buddy, that's your failure. Well, what they think <laughs> is that the public schools are coercive and they coerce children into being Uh uh little woke progressives but you know i just i'm just not sure that's true (laughs) and the and the and the and this is why it's so important for them to present wokeness as a rival religion is because yes um then it is the state imposing a theology Mm -hmm. of metaphysics upon right free individuals um, already exactly and so we're already that totally shifts the battlefield so to speak between warring rival religions and who will win? It becomes a question of dominance, yes. rather than you know the question of living in a pluralistic society in a in a decent way. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, 
just one more point about him. He this is not unique to to Hazoni's speech, uh, but it it is it was striking to me again how abstract formulations like liberals believe, yeah. conservatives believe, yeah, and it's like well who, and yeah. I mean you don't I, I obviously in political writing and and speaking you will you have to slip into abstractions at some point but ideally you give just some kind of sense of who you're talking about grounding it in something Mm -hmm. rather than these abstractions you spin out based on your sense of things from being terminally online you know (laughs) uh it's it's vibes man this is it is it's it is true like that it's become a bit of a cliche now but the the vibes approach to punditry where like you feel like liberals are doing this or that yeah and then that just becomes the basis of how you formulate your what you're opposed to yeah let's let's quickly talk about a couple of other one of other speakers one that i think maybe follows easily from this is amari's which we will not sorry amari we will not dwell on for long you know so god for listeners so amari he's like uh the former uh editor of the new york post opinion page now he's got his own thing going on he's like kind of treated as the re- representative of one of one of the like most pugnacious representative of the post-liberal right you know he uh-huh. was the figure on the traditionalist illiberal side of the amari french debates we know so rabbi amari um he's now sort of uh-huh. an integralist but he's really been on a tip about like um talking about neoliberalism in particular and about how <laughs> um about how you know a neoliberal economy produces the sort of fallen, secular, materially devastated conditions that we all live in in America. I'll just say his whole speech was this exegesis of a J.G. Ballard um, novel called Supercon. (laughs) And what he describes in this Ballard story is this place called Eden Olympia, which is a dystopian business park where the elites of France have sought refuge and um, created an ideal utopian society for like the professional managerial class. (laughs) And the the values of it are all about like health and wellness and, you know, psychiatry and a sort of neoliberal world work ethic, uh, deriving a sense of oneself from their career. Um, it's this, it's a, it's a neoliberal utopia. Uh-huh. And, and, and the, the, the story, the Ballard book, it, it ends up being this guy moves there because his wife is chosen to be a, a pediatrician for, uh, for the business park. And he discovers a sort of dark underbelly of it, which involves uh-huh. violence and violent sex. And the fact that her pre- predecessor as the pediatrician, like, walked into his office one day and killed a bunch of people and then shot himself in the head. And the main character is trying to understand what happened, what went wrong. So what's the sort of like dark underbelly of, of the neoliberal utopia that produces these perverse outcomes? What's so incredible is that Amari, he points out that one of the things that the, main, that the protagonist discovers is that the executives in the park go on what they call retissage, um, which, is a, which is a French word meaning raking over, where they, and this is, this is, this is Amari, Amari, quote, beat up local prostitutes, immigrants, and so forth. Now, retissage is the word that was used to describe, this, Amari does not point this out. <laughs> this is the word that was used to describe French troops going into occupied Algeria and colonial Algeria um, <laughs> during the time of the uh, Algerian independence movement and beating mm-hmm. up people randomly to try to reinforce, you know, the violent power uh-huh. of the state. Where, where Amari goes directly from 
pointing out that there's this retissage, which he admits they're beating up prostitutes and immigrants. He says, quote, Ballard makes one mistake. The executives in this book are far right nationalists. They vote for the National Front. (laughs) Amari says, that's false. In the real world version, they'd be Macronites through and through. So he he immediately, from the moment where he identifies the fact that the the dark, violent underbelly of neoliberalism is oppressing migrants and sexual minorities and people who engage in sex work, he immediately feels this tension there and has to say, if that sounds like they'd be far-right nationalists, actually, in my opinion, they'd be Macronites. But there's no justification for that. So it's basically he undermines his whole account of like the class violence and war that undergirds professional managerial class dominance without making any apology for it, without making any uh-huh. explanation. Because Ballard is right, of course, that the that the uh-huh. that the un, the dark undercurrent of neoliberalism is the oppression of certain kinds of people. That it needs these mm-hmm. outlets of violence to metabolize and reinforce the sick hierarchies that mm-hmm. that are that build it up. And Amari, like he 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 gets right up to realizing that a substantive critique of neoliberalism would would acknowledge that in fact it regenerates colonial hierarchies and necessitates these outlets of 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 ecstatic violence by the elite against against the poor and brown and then once he gets there he's like oh but actually uh, i don't think they would be uh, far right nationalists as ballard says i think they'd be clinton voters yes i mean it's very typical of i think a conservative approach to art to kind of just find in it whatever you want. Well, it's so funny. He says that's false. What do you mean that's false? You're you're engaging with this person's art and the implications <laughs> a, of a it. A novel. <laughs> a novel, right? This novel is false. Yes. Ballard has very meticulously created this world which is internally coherent. And then there's this one thing that makes it upsetting to you because you would vote for the National Front if you lived in France. And so uh-huh. your enemies yes, have exactly. to be the other side. But Sam, that, that would require... More than one step of thinking. <laughs> yeah. And that's the real issue here. He's just not a bright guy. And even uh, I was, I, di- I couldn't get through his whole speech because uh, when I started it, um, the first thing he does is mocks Rachel Levine, oh, the yeah. uh, public health official who was in Pennsylvania and then you know, joined the Biden administration. Yeah. And he said, neoliberalism makes us say and believe absurd things. Like he does air quotes like Admiral quote unquote Rachel yeah we have to pretend she's a woman yes yeah and I was just like fuck you buddy you know just like a little sicko just that kind of cheap shot just wanton cruelty and the way he revels in it like that's his move it's the same move he did to David French who you know we're not the biggest fans of David French but that little shit-eating grin oh uh you were you were a jag yeah yeah. You know, yeah. in the Iraq war. Yeah. It's that same like, I I repeated a right wing cliche, gotcha. Yeah. You know, and then the smirk. Uh, but even his book is filled with these potted summaries of novels, movies, uh, you know, biographies, other people's lives. And it's because he doesn't actually have a lot to say. It has to be largely taken up with filler. Yeah. That he just kind of, you know, smashes together to get whatever point he wants, like you're getting at. It's not really like an interesting engagement with a provocative well, novel. I think it, it almost is. It's just that he'd have to accept that neoliberal elites can be hateful nationalists who want to beat up migrants mm-hmm. uh, and prostitutes on their in their spare time, and that those things are bad, and and that <laughs> no, yeah, and that and that this that that the attraction of these neoliberal elites in the Ballard novel to 
purity and sanitation and cleanliness and health can all be reactionary impulses. Like, obviously, like, I don't know, you remember what happened with the 20th century when, like, (laughs) when the unclean Jews and uh, prostitutes and gays were seen as, like, bacteria in the body politic that needed to be expunged. Like, the idea that he, like, just started thinking about the motivations for political violence like 10 seconds ago and decided that it would be, <laughs> you know, Jeffrey Epstein and, uh, and Macron in charge of the, uh, the camps. Yeah, exactly. I just love it when one of these guys tries to do a literary analysis for their whole speech at national uh-huh. conservatism to, <laughs> then they fuck it up at the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, our, our old friend, my old friend, Patrick Deneen yes. was another one of the speakers. One of the more interesting ones. One of the more interesting ones, because it was really a, a talk about political theory in the United States, kind of going back to the founding. It was called Our Pre-Liberal Past and Post-Liberal Future, I believe. And it's actually probably not worth getting into yeah. to kind of try to summarize it. But it was, I just wanted to say, again, to in the interest of fairness, I thought it was, it, it was at least a talk you could wrestle with some. It's pretty simple. The thesis is just that... Um, it's extremely simple. Yeah, that like, <laughs> that like in fact, America wasn't this... Wasn't liberal from the rationalist start. Rationalist liberal uh, utopia from the start. That was actually uh-huh. a, a, a myth that was generated by the post-war era once we were engaged in the liberal internationalist project. But in fact, if you look back to the founders, you find that it was obviously, there was, there was a Christian moral orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was more nationalism, you know. All that these guys uh-huh. are all, you know, yes. love Adam. There were Adams laws against Hamilton. divorce. Yeah. There were laws against adultery. But I, even this, this was one of these things where I, I, at the very start, he says, uh, one purpose of conservatism is remembering in the face of our purposeful forgetting, which yeah. is almost like his definition of what liberalism means. Yeah. But in the face of purposeful forgetting and the promise of a utopian future. And I just pressed pause and wrote down on my notes. Who the hell on the left believes in a utopian future right now? <laughs> I'm incredibly demoralized. Yeah, you know most of the most of the intelligent people, and broadly speaking, you know center left, left moderate liberal yeah. people are not utopian. No. There is no sense that the future is going to usher in no. uh, the golden age. In no. fact, quite the opposite. There's no danger of us of immunitizing the eschaton these days. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that was Deneen's speech. Another one I wanted to mention, just because we recently did an episode on Hungary, was Rod Dreher's speech. Oh, yes. That's another one where it was kind of like a travelogue, you know, like <laughs> I, I lived in Hungary for the last few months. Um, but, the, but the amazing thing about it, the thing that just you, there is some almost sometimes, you know, I don't write about certain things or speak about certain things because I don't feel like I actually know enough. Yeah. And one thing watching this conference, these videos from this conference taught me is that I'm way too hard on myself. <laughs> you are. <laughs> you know, you can make big bucks saying absolutely anything that flits through your little pea-sized brain. Yeah. And one of them is, Dreyer was like, you know, the dominant narrative about what's actually going on in Hungary is so different from what I experienced there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, Rod, one would expect that on a propaganda trip, <laughs> you know, like the people who visited the Soviet Union. And as we now know, he knows almost precisely nothing about Hungary in terms of its history or the current realities yeah. of what the Orban government has done. Yeah. We saw that in the interview yeah. where people would say, do you know about this election law? No. Or do you know what he did to the press? No. Yeah. Or, you know, he just 
he could not be bothered to inform himself. And yet he gets up at this talk. The premise of the talk was, I went to Hungary. I saw the future. Yeah. You know, it's not perfect. Rod has these caveats. It's not perfect. It's not this. It's not that. But it was just kind of striking to to begin by lamenting how ignorant all we Americans are of what's actually going on in Hungary, what we're, you know, spoon-fed by the liberal press. And we we actually know for a fact he knows very, very little about the country. And it's because, you know, he was sent there on a junket uh, that was indirectly paid for by the Hungarian government. I'd say, yeah, the two things that it reminded me of is one... My report on my summer vacation. First day back at school. First day back. Everyone at school. gets up and say what you did yeah. all summer. <laughs> I had a wonderful time making friends with a new a new friend. His name is Victor Orban, and people they have the wrong idea about what this guy's about. I mean, he also has just this very childish way of speaking. Um, it just seemed like he hadn't done a whole lot of public speaking or something. Um, and then the the other thing it struck me as is like a, is like a party conference. Where somebody comes back from, you know, the newly established Soviet state <laughs> and has to stand up there implicitly with a gun behind their head and say yeah. how wonderful the revolutionary, <laughs> the revolution is playing out. You know, it, it, it's just incredible that anybody sat there while he just repeated these totally banal bromides about how wonderful it is i just i couldn't believe it it was so it was so it felt like a theater performance sam i'm loving the idea of like uh back to school telling what you did over your summer vacation and imagining rod kind of going up to the chalkboard and writing danube institute uh, (laughs) on it and and i brought in this uh tupperware of spiced sausages with paprika (laughs) this is what they eat in hungary (laughs) yeah gan said the great line it is epcot nationalism yes and rod's knowledge of this place is not more than that of a tourist (laughs) no that's exactly right a tourist to a fake version of the country (laughs) one thing i'll say i won't say anything from the speech because there was nothing to it but peter Thiel spoke again uh-huh. There was a sort of like, you know, when you notice who people say when they're giving their speeches, like, and as X person said yesterday, and as Y person uh-huh. said the other day, <laughs> I feel like there's a kind of um, paying the piper thing, you know, sort of p- paying tribute with Teal because uh, everybody wants uh, some of that Teal money. Um, oh yeah, I mean he's 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 basically singularly financing Vance and um, Blake Masters. Blake Masters, his Palantir pals, yeah. Peter Thiel just reminded me also that there was all this crypto shit. There, there, there all there were lots of references to like crypto as like the future, and I just wondered if um, <laughs> there's just some crypto money floating around the uh-huh. national conservative movement or their think tanks or whatever, because it was like like these guys who were like there's no way they know anything about cryptocurrency or why would they even fucking care just making references to it and i noticed in one of the accounts of the conference from the spectator um somebody mentioned that there was like a crypto investor um with like long blonde hair and like a crust punk jacket like hanging around Uh and like he went up to him afterwards and said like what'd you think of the conference and the crypto guy said based There's just, you know, many perverse symptoms in yeah. the interregnum. Maybe that's, maybe that's the big takeaway. It was really based. <laughs> NatCon 2, too national, too conservative, too based. I think it was it existed in a, uh, in a dialectical tension between cringe and based at all times. <laughs> yes. Well, Sam, maybe we should close it out. Yeah. Um, we began by, we kind of front-loaded our commentary but I just want to, David Brooks's piece, the one thing it is useful is he, he does give a number of direct quotes 
from a number of speakers. Yeah. And so you have Josh Hawley saying the left's ambition is to create a world beyond belonging. Yeah. Their grand ambition is to deconstruct the United States of America. Yeah. Ted Cruz, the left's attack is on America. Yeah. The left hates America. Yeah. It is the left that is trying to use culture as a tool to destroy America. Yeah. Rubio, we are confronted now by a systematic effort to dismantle our society, our yeah. traditions, our country, and our way of life. Yeah. <laughs> One line I did like from Brooks's uh, articles, he said, if I had to drink a shot every time some speaker cited Herbert Marcuse or Antonio Gramsci, I'd be dead of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I, I think the takeaway here is the utterly apocalyptic vision yeah. that is based on an idea of you know the broad liberal left as being a totalitarian cult, to yeah. use Rachel Bovard's uh, terms, bent on destroying the country yeah. and especially destroying the people who want to preserve, you know, our great traditions and heritage. Yeah. And that, as we've said, you have to ask, what are they giving themselves permission to do? And I think the answer is damn near anything they want in the pursuit of power. Yeah. To me, it was just an incredibly alarming experience to watch these videos because our listeners know we've been tracking this stuff for a couple of years now, yeah. it's hard to surprise me. It's hard to shock me. And maybe I wasn't exactly surprised or shocked, but I, even I was surprised at the visceral reaction I had. But it's, hmm. uh, it's, it's the one David Brooks had, and I think other viewers have had, when you actually, when you hear over and over again that the left is trying to destroy your country. Yeah. And they're a totalitarian cult bent on destroying you and your family. Yeah. Well, like, what is... Let's say that, you know, what is the appropriate reaction what to that? What means if they're not true, justified. Yes, exactly. If that is true, then you are basically released from any kind of decent political morality yeah. that believes in, say, you know, if you lose an election, you shouldn't tear down the country yeah. in response, right? If you don't get your way on this or that bill, you could see just the rage, too, that just they, they aren't in the driver's seat and they want to be so bad and they're going to do anything to get there. And when they have that power, it's, it's time for a comeuppance. We'll see. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think we might see. <sighs> well, that's NatCon 2. <laughs> yes I think you yes. summed it up well I don't think I have anything to add I mean um, mm -hmm. like a lot of things on the right it's scary while being silly at the same time um, yes. it's pathetic but it's but it, but in the, the ways in which it's pathetic are usually expressed as raging vitriol and violence against its own impotence and so it, any moment in which it's pathetic it's like two seconds away from being scary you know um yes there's a there's a you know there's obviously like a simultaneous mixing of the desire to be the victim in american society while relishing the possibility of being the person who gets to distribute the spoils to our friends and punish our enemies so these kind of contradictions are always uh mm -hmm. mingling in the muck <laughs> yes well before we uh, close out, I just want to say, listeners, if you're on the fence about supporting us on Patreon, the sheer damage done to my psyche and, and physical <laughs> and mental well-being by sitting through these videos, if you can't throw us five bucks after this, yeah. you know, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. We suffer for our listeners. We love our listeners, but we suffer for them, too. There's, there's, there's obviously been lots of really good... Um, Bonus episodes lately, including Matt's um, interview with uh, the playwright Ben Ferkey, aka 
Twitter's pasta bin. Yeah, about his play <laughs> about sort of QAnon and um, conspiracy theories. Um, coming up, there's going to be a conversation between me and Pat Blanchfield about the uses of Freud for understanding the right. Um, I'm, fine. I'm so Matt's, excited to listen Matt, to that Matt's one. finally letting me do the Freud pod I've been wanting to do. <laughs> I'm just happy you're going to talk about it with someone else. For a change. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I'm sure Hannah is too. Yeah, I know. I'm teasing. No, I'm no, teasing it's, it's a good one. And then as because so many listeners asked after um, the last episode of Succession, we can say we will be doing a bonus episode at least on Succession. And, at uh, least. Yeah. Yeah. We're working that out now. And, uh, so we got some good stuff lined up. Maybe a special, you know, holiday uh, sure. episode. Sure, I got sure. some stuff in the works, but we're not going to, we won't speculate, but yeah. uh, it's probably not the worst five bucks a month you'll spend. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking for myself, I spend that you know money on all kinds of worse things. Yeah, me too. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Matt. This was fun. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if thank a little you, depressing. Sam. And thank you, listeners. We'll catch you next time. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you.